0: Happy Friday and welcome to the Bulwark podcast. Hey, before we, uh, we start, uh, this is going to be my last, uh, live podcast for a little while, but do not worry because we have something very special planned. Uh, starting on Monday, we're going to be sharing some of the encore best of Bulwark podcasts. We'll hear from uh, Adam Kinzinger and Maggie Haberman. And Peter Baker and Susan glasser and and a host of others. It, we, we thought this was a good idea. It's not just going to be the best Tim podcast.
1: I've misunderstood the uh Uh, the pitch i thought it was going to be the best tim podcast
0: that you were going to air no this is the best of our podcast okay the best of our podcast you know we do this every single day and i understand that not everybody listens every single day and there's just so much good content out there so this seemed like a good opportunity to to reprise some of the conversations that we've had over the last year so tim Welcome to the podcast. I want to start with this, okay? Let's start with the big story of the day. Kirsten Cinema declares her independence.
1: We make decisions about what's best for ourselves, our family, and our community. And so we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, is this a Republican idea or is this a Democratic idea? Is this liberal or is this conservative? That's not how Arizonans
0: think. What we think about is, What's right for my family? What's right for my community? What's right for my future? So, Tim, you getting a tingle up your leg listening to that?
1: Not exactly. Um, I thought that the audio is going to be Martina McBride or, or something from. Uh, what was the <laughs> president's name? in Independence Day. Today is the day we hey, did that. Uh, um, that's good. Yeah. Well, just first, real quick, I'm going to get to cinema. But I just, I really hope you enjoy your time in France. And if you. Uh, Start speaking, you know, if there's maybe some breaking news or you can do a little parlez-vous français. And, you know, I just hope you come back with a, you know, a beret and maybe cigarette smoking, pick cigarette smoking back up.
0: You never know what could happen. I don't think I'm going to pick up the cigarette smoking, but no, and the, and the beret would be, a, would be a hard no as well. Okay, well, no. something. Hopefully, you know, hopefully you can just really
1: embrace the culture and, and the time off. Um, Thank you. Cinema. She's a strange bird. You think? You know, you think? Um, really? And uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's an understatement of the year. You know, I, I said this, I kind of care less about this than I did some of the silliness around some of the legislation, particularly what ended up becoming the... IRA. But, you know, it could have some important ramifications. Uh, it seems as if she's going to keep caucusing with Democrats, but I guess not showing up to the caucus. Right. She wants more time to hang out because the 51-49 versus 50-50 did matter. Uh, I mean, the Democrats maintain their Senate majority. It's a big deal. But yeah, but
0: it, the committees then become plus one Democrat instead of even. So this does not affect the balance of power in the Senate, at least as of right now, right? Because, I mean, just to remind people, there are two other independents who caucus with the Democrats. So Bernie Sanders is simply really not a Democrat. He, he's an independent. Angus King from Maine is an independent. They caucus. They are part of that 51-49 majority. If she continues to do that, then the committee structure doesn't change. Right. The majority doesn't change. So That's kind of the, the, let's just start, everybody take a deep breath about that.
1: Yeah, but I, I think that's a fair thing to be worried about, right, as the thing as the thing goes on that this could sure. be just a nudge away from that. And then eventually, you you know, she decides that it'd be good for the democratic, you know, systems and our norms to go back to even Senate committees, <laughs> you know, who the hell knows, right, with Kristen Senna. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something that's a fair thing to be worried about in that sense. 5149 and 5050 as is meaningfully different in a way that 5149 and like 5248 mm-hmm. isn't. So that's just one note as we look ahead to this. I, I think the other just political note is she was going to be in a really tough spot in a primary with Ruben Gallego coming up in a Democratic primary when she's up for re-election. Doing the Angus King thing would be a very also could be in trouble, but, but, you know, changes the calculus quite a bit, right? Because, you know, the Democrats are like, do we really run two quasi-Democrats, right? Um, it's harder to beat her in a general election, so it could be a savvy move in that case if the Democrats decide, you know, if she votes enough with them and continues to caucus with them, Democrats might decide this is not worth
0: spoiling a Senate seat over. No, you're right here, because if she does run, and she didn't say whether she's running for re-election, although that video that I played, no, that's a campaign video. <laughs> There's no question about it. For sure. she, She's running. So if she does, that raises the possibility of this fractured field, you know, could divide Democratic and independent votes. And so a lot of people are going, oh, my God, this is how we get Senator Kerry Lake. Right.
1: Yeah. And so you end, you might end up with a McMullen situation that just people are less excited about, where instead <laughs> of doing the McMullen... Mullen deal with the Democrat and the Independent,
0: increasing your odds, you do it out of reluctance because it's the only option. Yeah, but that requires Democrats to stand down yeah, like right. they did in Utah. I can't quite see the Democrats in Arizona standing down. It's hard to
1: imagine. Yeah, it depends a lot on our behavior. And, and the contempt, I think, is really real. Just one observation I have. So when I was writing, about the Arizona governor's race, one of those articles that I wrote ahead of the election, a couple of friends in Arizona had flagged for me that Cinema had had not actually endorsed hops, you know, and hadn't even said she was going to support her. And, you Mm -hmm. know, a couple of them just not really jokingly, but kind of gallows humor said she might even be voting for Carrie Lake, who knows, right? And so I emailed her team and was just like, hey, who's cinema voting for in the governor's race? And they wouldn't tell me. Weird. And then the spokesperson called and we had a very, it was an interesting conversation just because we, it was off the record, But but just the spirit of it was you could sense that there is just a lot of bitterness and it's a two-way street. And I think that, some of cinema's complaints about the democrats are legitimate you covered a couple of them in your newsletter this morning you know i think that people are very harsh on
0: her within the party yeah the following her into bathrooms and harassing and berating and censuring her maybe yeah. was not a move of real political genius after all but what do i know exactly
1: yeah and and i think that she gets a lot of heat from inside the tent some of it's deserved some of it's you know maybe a little overheated some of it's maybe maybe has a tinge of sexism but you could sense you know, this phone call was kind of like me calling me eight days before, you know, Jeb lost. <laughs> I mean, like this person was beaten down <laughs> and angry and annoyed and flustered. And I mean, they, you know, they felt like they were getting it from all sides
0: in a real way. Um and so I think that that sheds a little bit of light on this. To underline the point here, you know, her standing with fellow Democrats, there was this uh, with data for progress poll out earlier this year that showed her with a minus 57 approval rating among Democratic primary voters. She had a 19% favorable rating, 76% unfavorable rating. So the reality is the Democrats had basically wash their hands of her. She was going to get absolutely shellacked at a Democratic primary. So you can understand why she might feel the way she felt. Okay, you had another point, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. so no, my last thing on her, and and here's where I think that she brings it on herself uh, to a certain degree, despite the fact that I agree, you know, I shouldn't be chasing people into bathrooms, and, you know, some of the mocking of her for her outfits and stuff is weird and inappropriate. and It's still, like, not really clear why, she, you know, is does not feel comfortable in the Democratic coalition. I mean, she's like a thorn in the side of the Democrats, just like instinctually. I mean, it's just like she's like a human cactus that just likes to poke people for no real reason. It's not like there's this ideological
0: kind of like a Democratic lesbian version of John McCain, though. Well, right? not, yeah, I mean, but Arizona's I got a little bit of a history of independents who are prickly and. Managed to tick off their party, yeah. And McCain is prickly and was
1: sometimes impulsive, but like McCain's ideology was coherent, right? I mean, he was a you know kind of of globalist, what you would call the word globalist now, like kind of neocon that was non-traditional, you know, when it came to you know some of the economic policies and was for reforms in campaign finance in areas like this, right? So like everybody kind of knew what they were signing up for, that, you know, John McCain was gonna be for every <laughs> war that people wanted to. And <laughs> so if, if there's disagreements within the party, you knew which side he'd be on. Yeah. You knew that he'd want to help yeah. free people and refugees and asylum everywhere and that there's gonna be some people in the party that wanted us to not let anybody in. You knew that he'd always want people to, to let people in. You know, you knew he'd be for you know, campaign finance reforms that would side him with the Democrats more times did not, right? Like from time to time, like he – I think that he voted against the Bush tax cuts just because he was annoyed at George W. Bush one time, right? So occasionally he would act like cinema, right? But, but mostly he had a coherent ideology that you knew what you were getting from him and his opposition to the party was ideological and you felt like it was largely principled. I can't tell you what Kristen Cinema's ideological objections are to the party, really. Like she, like her objection on the last Inflation Reduction Act was like she wanted to not increase taxes on the hedge fund guys, and she used to be a member of the Green Party, and she feels very passionate about the filibuster for some reason. Weird. Yeah. And like this is the thing: if you take out all of her weird thorn in the
0: side stuff. She was with the Democrats on the infrastructure thing. She voted with Biden 90% of the time. If it wasn't for her, he would not have gotten those judges through. He would not have gotten any of that stuff. The gun bill
1: she She was negotiating on. So she did some good things
0: that that is within the Democratic policy rubric so why is she always so why is she different than joe manchin i mean you're like a you know saint joe manchin why why not saint kirsten cinema i mean she doesn't want big omnibus spending bills and i don't know i I don't know but the the hedge fund thing i i can't explain I, i don't know joe manchin has a pretty
1: clear ideological framework though and joe manchin is a conservative west virginia democrat like he he's for this is like the john mccain thing and he's not going to be for things that hurt the coal industry and and other fossil fuels, right? I mean, he's not going to be for big spending bills. He is on guns, you know, going to be want to cut a middle ground, right? He's not going to be for assault weapons bans. Or he might be for background checks, right? Because he's from West Virginia. I like that makes sense, right? Like it makes sense politically in a state that Joe Biden got like eight percent of the vote, <laughs> and and it makes sense ideologically. Kirsten is from Everyone is Democrats in her state now. Uh, You know, I mean, she says that, like, Arizonans, we like our independents. I guess that's kind of true. But Mark Kelly won by five points. Katie Hobbs won, despite
0: (laughs) my critiques of her campaign. It's more about the tone, it seems like, because, as you point out, her voting record is pretty consistent. But I do think that the blowback that she got, the fact that she was declared a heretic, I think that ran pretty deep.
1: For sure. And I think that there is obviously some internal resentment. And so that was, to me, like, is my point, like, from when I was talking to her spokesperson, that makes sense to me, right? Like, that there's some resentment that she was attacked too harshly for some kind of minor crimes against the tribe. But the other part of it, which is like, why she's always being such a thorn in their side, you know, it would make more sense to me if she had something that was a little bit more coherent as far as like, this is Kristen Cinema. I'm with the Democrats on 85% of the things. Here are the 10% of things that I feel really passionately about that I'm out of step with the party on. All the voters know it. I know it. You can either welcome me into the caucus or not. I just think that people would be fine with that. But like, that's not what it is. It's just like out of the blue on Tuesday morning, they're like, is Kristen Cinema going to try to be the chart in the punch bowl today over something random? Like Because she's upset. I think that is what kind of led to a lot of this
0: tension. Well, I saw somebody on Twitter uh, refer to this as, as creating a Sophie's Choice for Democrats now, because yeah. they really have to make some tough decisions, especially because the map in 2024 is brutal for the Democrats. Really? Uh, they'll be defending all sorts of seats. Doesn't mean that they can't do it, but it's going to be a very, very tough Senate map, and they cannot afford to lose that Arizona Senate seat. So oof, we'll see. You know, I'd like, I'd like to actually wallow in this for for some time. I devoted pretty much my full morning shot. Today to, to, the whole Kirsten Cinema thing is including a you know I know people love the you know I told you so warnings you know uh, from the past but you know what here's the thing Tim we do this on Fridays and this has been the case since 2017 that by the time you get to Friday you forget the massively big stories from Monday. You know what I mean? And so (laughs) I want to get to the Brittany Griner story. I want to get to Herschel Walker. I want to get to all of this stuff. I want to get to the fact that the, you know, Congress has just given, you know, final passage to this, to the, you know, respect for marriage bill, which is a truly epic moment in terms of, you know, the long-term shift in politics. I want to talk about that too. But before we do this, can we just rewind the tape to the beginning of the week where we were still going, wait, did the former president of the United States actually call for terminating the Constitution? I mean, it's one of those things where every once in a while, could we just slow it down a little bit to to meditate on the fact that the former president of the United States says that he wanted to be reinstalled in office? And if that took throwing out all of the laws, rules, and even the articles of the Constitution, he was down with that. You have a fantastic not my party where you deal with this. And I just want to play the end of it because I think you ask a really interesting question. So Tim, I'm going to play Tim for you.
1: Growing up, a lot of Republican nerds like me carried around our little pocket constitutions, like a lot of GOP politicians still do. The likely incoming Republican speaker, Kevin McCarthy, has said he even plans to have a performative reading of the document on the House floor next month. How does that square with refusing to condemn the man who wants to terminate it? Can't have them both, honey. The best thing that McCarthy and the Republicans could do, both for the country and for their own political viability in 2024, would be to begin that reading with a universal condemnation of Trump's assault on the document that they claim to care so much about.
0: You know that's never going to
1: happen. Otherwise, they'll sink to new lows by continuing to chain themselves to their shipwreck Tink or swim. Now I wanna hear from y'all. Trump isn't going anywhere, but party wants to unshackle this show from covering him for a while. Would you guys rather that I keep Tomahawk dunking on Trump every time he ups the ante with his bullshit or put him on ice for a bit so the 2024 campaign really heats up? Let me know by swiping up and taking the poll and we'll see you next week for more Not My Party.
0: Okay, so I want to be first out of the box here, Tim. I want to swipe up and say, uh, keep the tomahawk dunking coming, because I think we've gone through the what happens when you ignore the guy. Yeah. So what do you think people are going to say? What is, what is your audience of, of Enfuego 17 to 24-year-olds who watch you on Snapchat? What are they going to say, do you think?
1: I'm fascinated to find out. Actually, um, I've had one person DM me in, uh, privately on Instagram and say that they uh, that they couldn't figure out how to do the poll thing, and so that the, to count their vote as a yes or <laughs> a teen, so it's not all the old people who can't figure out the technologies. Had I known you were going to ask that, I would have asked Drew for where the poll stands today before I got on the podcast. So I don't know. I, I'll tweet out an update or something for for listeners. But um, I really don't know, and and I was genuinely torn, and this is why I put that in there because I was like, I don't want to do another episode on Trump this week. There was so much stuff. There's the was happening to, to your point, some of the stuff was new. I know. You know, I, I take know. these things on Tuesdays, they come out on Thursdays. And so most of the time that works. And sometimes I'm just like, oh, I wish I would have known Britney Griner is going to happen or this is going to happen um, this week.
0: No, no, no. This was the bi- this is still the big story of the week, Tim.
1: This still is the big story. Like, yeah, you're right. And this goes to show you how crazy and how much how, how much news we've had is like, I was like, I wonder what he's going to t- ask me about what happened on Monday. I didn't even know where you were going with us when you started yeah. the windup. Um, and so, I, no, yes, a former president. Saying he wants to terminate the Constitution <laughs> is unprecedented. Uh, this is a point that I made earlier in Can that episode. I think it's important <laughs> for the teens, yeah, the teens, to realize that like this is not something. You know, you could go back to you know the Japanese internment or something, a civil war, but like in the post World War II era, there is nothing even in the ballpark of this, like a, a, a president, a former, there's not a Senator. There's not a Congressman. There's not a governor that said that we should terminate the constitution. And this is a singular person who's, well, I guess now there's a Congressman since Paul Gosar endorsed no. him. but um,
0: there's a
1: singular person who has proposed this. And so you can't just sweep it under the rug. And so I don't, I think that we should probably keep covering him. You're going to France, so you get this. Like, you know, we're through this election cycle. Maybe I can just take two months off of this asshole and deal with him back in February again. But, um, you know, this was so bad, I felt like we had to do it Mm -hmm. this week. And I understand why. I wrote a book about why. But like, it does feel like that he has given these guys such an opportunity to just be like, you know. I'm against Nazis and for the Constitution and Ron DeSantis seems fine. Let's just move on. Right? Like and and the fact that people can't do that still. They'll allude to it. Liebovich was good on this on the podcast on Wednesday. Mitt Romney'll say it, but everybody else, you know, they might dance around it, they'll say it without saying his name. But it's just like why can't people just say that? Like, why can't Tucker Carlson and, and Laura Ingraham and Sean Hannity just be like, nope, guys, Nazis bad, Constitution good. Let's, just, I'm done with this guy forever. Like, fuck yeah.
0: Well, exactly. In the video, you say, you think this would be a layup for my former conservative pals? I mean, is it that hard to say having dinner with Nazis and proposing we shred the Constitution is a deal breaker? It doesn't feel hard. It is so, people, this is it. You get your get out of jail card. It's right here. And <laughs> it's like, no, no.
1: And even the national review guys, even the guys that want to get rid of them, you know, and, and they seem to be the most on the front edge of this. So I hate to keep picking on them on, on trying to move the party off of Trump. But even those guys are like, yeah, DeSantis, it wouldn't be strategic for him to weigh in. I'm like, are we sh- really? Are we sure about that? Like, have we polled? The Republican primary voters, uh, like, are they really going to be mad at Ron DeSantis if he's if he's just like, you know, I don't think we should hang out with Nazis and I, I think we should keep the Constitution in place. Like, I, is that stent- sentence really going to hurt DeSantis in the primary? I, it's possible that it does,
0: but I don't know that we know for sure. Just one last comment on on all of this. You know, almost all the commentary now is like, well, does this help you or hurt you in 2024? Is this politically good or is this politically bad? What will this mean for suburban swing voters? At some point, one of the reasons why you denounce Nazis and shredding the Constitution is because you actually believe in something, you have principles, there's a vestige of conscience deep inside there somewhere, right? You take an oath to uphold the Constitution. So yes, I understand in our political environment, everything's about, does this help you or does this hurt you? Well, you know, really, is it naive now? Is it like just, you know, totally nerdy to say, well, it's also... Because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, uh, yeah. And also I'm just
1: I'm just floating out there the possibility that in this case it might be the right thing to do and not hurt you. You know, I mean, like I get that on that, that people have been burned on this one with Trump,
0: but he feels pretty weak right now, and this stuff is yeah, is is yeah. way out there. Yeah, ex- exactly. And and by the way, speaking of what kind of a week it has been, Um, Again, this is Friday. I believe it was Tuesday that the Trump organization was found guilty of 17 felonies, and it probably wouldn't make a top 10 list of the big stories of the week. (laughs) So just just mentioning that. So. Let's talk about Herschel Walker just a little bit. I have to say that I'm already fatigued from the midterm elections, but I do want to make one point here. And JVL made this point on the live stream last night, and I thought it was really interesting. He read from Herschel Walker's concession speech. First of all, it's interesting that he gave a concession speech, that even some of the hardcore MAGA people actually gave concession speeches, which we no longer take for granted. And he made the point, doesn't the fact that even Doug Mastriano and Herschel Walker conceded that they lost the elections, doesn't that really sort of highlight what outliers people like Kerry Lake and Donald Trump are? Doesn't it underline the fact that Donald Trump and his refusal to recognize the outcome of the election is really kind of a uniquely toxic figure? Just kind of a reminder that, you know, even in this bizarre era, that this election denialism you know, it, it's not universal. I, I don't want to give too much credit to Herschel Walker for all of this, but, you know, by the standards of, of our particular era, it was a gracious concession speech and kind of reminds you how bizarre and uh, unique the Kerry Lakes and, and Donald Trumps are. It does, and I'll just be a Bulwark fanboy for a second. Be
1: like, those Thursday night live streams are good. You got it. Christmas time; is a good, good time for Bulwark Plus yeah. signing up for. Um, you know, Bulwark Plus it's yeah. it's, a, it's the merriest yeah. gift of the year. Um, not always the, the merriest, I guess, evenings, but um, you know, over the aggregate, we keep people merry. Yes, Donald Trump is an outlier. He is uniquely personally deranged and this is like the george conway like you know I, i'm not a psychiatrist but donald trump is psychotic uh type of thing yes and that is a category difference and i think that it's just important to recognize that and it was it's a chick that i've had for a while now but it's like it's really hard to imagine people storming the capitol waving ted cruz or ron DeSantis flags. right? Right? It's really hard to imagine that. And it was always really hard to imagine people storming the Capitol waving Doug Mastriano flags. Now, that doesn't mean that their footsie with the big lie and their accommodation with the big lie wasn't problematic. It was. And and you could have one-off crazy people that get radicalized by a lot of things. But the scale and the scope of this lie, like it really takes people who are personally deranged to be able to do that. And I guess Carrie Lake was the winner of the derangement category of, of our midterm candidates, uh, and Mark Fincham maybe uh, also in Arizona. But I think that that's important to recognize and it's important to just acknowledge there was a ton of great news about democracy in these midterms, and Herschel Walker's defeat and concession is
0: the latest example of it. Okay, uh, let's have some rank punditry here uh, looking at the at the results. It, yeah. Georgia is fascinating because every other Republican won, and won relatively comfortably. So there's kind of a debate going on about what happened in, among Republicans. It seems pretty obvious to me, and I want to get your take on all of this, you know, what was really decisive here was that soft Republicans broke against him, that there are Republicans who will vote for every other candidate, but when it comes to Trump and or somebody as Trumpy and bizarre as Herschel Walker, they just won't go along. You know, as I as I said on a previous podcast, I wish there was a name for those kinds of Republicans. Uh, you know, maybe we should work on coming up with that, never or something, I don't know, whatever. So your thoughts on all of this, because, it, you know, once again, Soft Republicans, I think, who are willing to split their ticket, turn out to be absolutely decisive in in these elections.
1: Yeah, and this is persuasion matters.
0: I I, This was this was politics 101 up to
1: like. I mean 10, 15 years ago and then something happened with the Bush reelect in 04 and then Obama in 08 that made people think that all that mattered in politics was turning out the base and this idea like has snowballed down a mountain to such a degree that the Donald Trump voters thought that Doug Mastriano and Donald Trump was going to be the only thing that mattered and you still see it on the Democratic side and unfortunately for Democrats you saw it in Georgia with Stacey Abrams and, and, and I just think that this Georgia is a laboratory for this. This does not take away anything from the work that Stacey Abrams did to register people and to register black voters and register young voters in Florida, which were part of the, you know, part of the recipe for getting uh, Democrats to win Georgia now in two straight election cycles. But it was only part of the recipe. You know, a, a red state, doesn't turn blue just by turning out more young voters. The math doesn't work like that. You have to persuade people. You got to bring folks over. And and I think that sure. on the Democratic side, particularly in the Trump era, I kind of understand why, frankly, is it's it's you look at Republicans, mm-hmm. you're like, if you voted for Donald Trump, you must be a horrible person, right? Like you must be so un ungettable and irredeemable that we can't even care about you anymore. And like humans are just more complicated than that. And that's not, true. And there are some irredeemable Trump voters. And there were some people that held their nose for Donald Trump and didn't pay attention that closely to all of his gaffes and are Fox News watchers. So we weren't told about some of his, you know, negative comments and were made to believe really crazy things about Hillary Clinton and her kill list or whatever. And so they they held their nose and voted for him. But they were gettable. They were still gettable with the right kind of persuasion campaign. And, and right. if you look at Nate Cohen has a really great article in New York Times about this. Turn out the cycle in the midterm, despite Democrats' surprisingly good cycle, it was a normal midterm cycle. The Republican turnout and enthusiasm was higher. Republicans did turn out more across the country. It just was a certain percentage of Republicans wouldn't vote for the biggest lunatics on the, t- on the ballot. And good news for Democrats, Republicans nominated a lot of big lunatics, and so that worked out for them. Mm-hmm. And so when I wrote that article and I went down to Georgia, that my biggest surprising takeaway from interviewing people who said that they were... Kemp Warnock voters was I expected them to be negative on Herschel all right for them to just be like hey Brian Kemp's done a fine job he's a fine governor but Herschel's a lunatic I can't vote for him person after person in those interviews said to me yeah um, Kemp I think has done a pretty good job but I don't know Stacey feels like she's gone mm-hmm. a little too woke too far left right. I, again this is all mm-hmm. pro- I'm not endorsing all these views I'm just I'm just saying what these voters are saying meanwhile. Raphael Warnock's like his ads are really good, and apparently he's worked with Tommy Tuberville on stuff that takes balls to do that, and he's a pastor and he's a dad and I don't know he just seems really relatable to me, and I can trust him like it was as much about Warnock as it was about Walker very for these people. Warnock ran yeah. a very smart, intentional campaign they didn't do interviews with national press he didn't do big magazines he didn't engage on like random. You know, culture war fights, except for the ones he really cared about, like Dobbs and voting rights. But he didn't like weigh in on every Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, you know, thing. Right. He he smartly positioned himself as somebody that these Atlanta Republican red dogs or or even Republicans could get comfortable with him, And it worked. And he ends up winning by, I think, 11 points when the final tallies come in, 11 points better on the margin than than Abrams did. And that is a ton. That is one out of it's 10 amazing. voters yeah. switched. And that, I, I think, is a testament not just to how partly to how crazy Walker was, partly to the fact that Brian Kemp showed a, just the tiny iota of courage standing up to Trump, but also partly because of the fact that Warnock actually believed in persuasion. And, and if you look at his campaigns post-mortem interviews, that's that's what they all say.
0: This is an excellent point. And this was, of course, very intentional. And they, they talked about it afterwards, that they had the choice of going hard for just ginning up the base and decided, no, we are going to engage in this politics of persuasion. We are going to reach out to independents. We are going to go for those soft Republicans. They, and they crafted their message in the persona of the campaign. It was a very, very smart campaign, and one that I think has tremendous lessons going forward for these swing states. With Shapiro in Pennsylvania, just exactly every Democrat, every Democrat should have to
1: go to a school where they just listen to a presentation from Raphael Warnock and Josh Shapiro's
0: campaign teams. Well, Mark <laughs> Kelly in Arizona yeah, too, Kelly, back to Arizona. To well, this raises an interesting question. Um, who do you think ran the best campaigns of 2022? I would love to see an article from you, by the way, on this. Who ran the best campaigns and who ran the worst campaigns?
1: Yeah. So, well, so it's hard to sometimes judge in a vacuum, but I mean, Shapiro and Mastriano just really jump right out at you, right? I mean, it's possible that we had the best campaign and the worst campaign running the same state. I just, you look at margins, right? I mean, the difference between the Shapiro and Fetterman margin, very notable, right? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but but a significant difference. Warnock and and Kemp, a significant difference. You know, Ohio on the inverse of this, you see DeWine and Vance, right? Like, so that's another good example. I mean, if the model was there, Kemp, right? I, I think for Kemp and DeWine, like the model was there for Republican governors. They showed how you win in ways that Republican Senate campaigns didn't. You know, I have to shout out my friend Adam Frisch in, uh, in Colorado mm-hmm. to almost yeah, be Lauren more. Boebert. I had an amazing yep. campaign. Nobody believed him, mm-hmm. literally nobody except Bill Crystal. And Bill Crystal kind of mm-hmm. talked me into kind of believing him. I'd have to think about it a little more, but those are some of the ones that jump out at me.
0: Yeah, I also think that uh, Governor Whitmer's campaign really um, was, was very effective. And, you know, you think about what's happened in states like Pennsylvania and in Michigan and in Arizona and Georgia. And I think they all have roadmaps for what you need to do to win these these elections. And so, you know, we, we've done a lot of these podcasts saying, you yeah, know, Democrats are bad at this or Democrats can't do this. Uh, in, in all of those states, they got the formula. And I, and I think they hit that spot.
1: Man. And one thing for our lefty listeners is sometimes I get this feedback from the lefties who are like, you guys just want Democrats to run to the middle and be moderate because you're, you're conservatives, you're moderates. And, uh, sure, yeah, right? I love a moderate Democrat, don't get me wrong. But- I think an interesting lesson from Shapiro, Whitmer, Kelly, Warnock—none of them like ran DLC nineteen ninety two moderate, you know, let's crime bill <laughs> like campaigns. Really, uh, you know, I mean uh, Shapiro, um, in particular, I think did a nice job of separating from you know fund the police and some of the crazy stuff that's happening in Philadelphia. But you know, they mostly ran you know kind of middle of the road democratic platforms I mean, middle of the road, like in the middle of the Democratic coalition. And yet they did it by just choosing their spots, yeah. right? Like choosing the spots where they didn't engage, which is sometimes as, as important as do engaging, choosing a couple of things like defund the police, you know, to make sure to just put a, a little bit of an arm away from the far left. But mostly, you know, kind of running on the Biden agenda, running on infrastructure, running on actually dealing with health care, running on modest gun reforms, common sense gun reforms you know, none of these folks were like running like or were doing what Joe Manchin did, or Kristen Cinema did, right? And it worked, you know, because of the way that they branded themselves and how they chose to engage. And I think that's like an important lesson um that that Democrats can learn. That that you can do this without totally, you know whatever, like throwing in with the people you might not agree with on cultural matters.
0: Yeah, let me just throw out one other name as a possibility, if you're making a list of, you know, best campaigns. Uh, Wes Moore, mm, the new governor right. of, of yeah. Maryland. Now, of course, that was a layup. That was a, a slam dunk, but very, very impressive figure. But, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think that Brian Kemp's success is underrated. For sure. You know, and you you mentioned this before, you know, in part because Here you have a very conservative Republican who openly defied Donald Trump. I mean, who went right at him on the big lie and not only survived, but has prospered. And I think that the conventional wisdom in the Republican Party is just baked in that if you defy, if you are too open in defying Donald Trump, that it's political death, that you will be destroyed. You'll either be destroyed in the primary or the party will be so divided that you can't win a general election. And here Brian Kemp going, I basically called him out on the big lie, and Brad Raffensberger and I are still in office. It's a counter narrative that other Republicans need to think about. More broadly, as opposed to the National Review folks who go, you know, Ron DeSantis is just being brilliant by not saying anything, not ever taking a stand because you cannot ever go up against Donald Trump. Yeah.
1: For as much as you praise Warnock, I, again, just looking at the politics of this for being 11 points better than Abrams. Kemp's 11 points better than Walker, and that's as impressive as, I mean, Ron DeSantis wasn't running 11 points better than Rubio, right? I mean, so just if you look at the in-state, like the performance above expectations, uh, you know, the little war wins above replacement, if you will, for politics. Like Kemp obviously gets it. And the other thing that that you make a really great point on that I've been trying to hammer on my TV (laughs) interviews is, yeah, Trump is to blame for Walker. But like, so is Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott and the Republican establishment for yes. not having the balls yep. to try to challenge him, okay, or to put up a primary opponent. Because are mm-hmm. we sure Blocker would have won a primary? I don't think that there's any reason to be certain of that. Nobody thought that Brad Raffensperger was going to win a contested Secretary of State primary. Mm-hmm. Everyone thought that was baked in the no cake. No one. That he was okay. DOA. He wins. Kemp wins against Purdue handily. Is it not possible that somebody that was um, in the Kemp Vane couldn't have run against Walker, who from day one you knew was a disaster. I went back and looked. I wrote that article, my Herschel Walker profile, in March of 2021. And all you had to do is read that article to know that the Walker campaign was going to be a nightmare in March of 2021. And so you yeah, have to be bad. 15 to be bad. <laughs> months from to come up with a different candidate and that, and at least attempt. But they didn't do that because they still were so scared of Donald Trump. They're scared of their own voters. They're scared of their own shadow. None of them have any courage or have any balls. and They've learned all the wrong lessons from the last seven years. It was just a crucial mistake by Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell. And it's easy for them to point the finger at Trump, but they are equally, if not more, more responsible, because it's their job, actually, to elect senators.
0: No, and that was actually one of the big surprises of the cycle, is that Mitch McConnell, who obviously, there's no love lost between him and Donald Trump, the fact that he rolled over on Herschel Walker, and it was like, okay, uh, your job is to be the grown-up in the room, and clearly, you abdicated that. So, yeah, he he shares the blame dramatically. But, you know, you mentioned something that, again, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to the the Brian Kemp story, but the more I think about it, I think the more important this narrative is... That, you know, Brian Kemp did not go along with uh, the big lie. Trump went all in to destroy him, to get rid of him. He got former Senator David Perdue. To run against him in the primary, so you have one of the biggest names in Georgia politics, right? Who had been a United States senator up until like five minutes ago. So if from Trump's point of view, re- Purdue family, Sonny Purdue, had also exactly. been governor of the state. He yeah. recruited the absolute best, strongest candidate to take out the guy who had gone full cock rhino on him. And what was the result in that primary? Was it like 70, 30? It was like 63
1: yeah. to 37, I think. It, I'm going from memory. was Well,
0: whatever it was, a, well, it was a complete blowout. It wasn't even close. So Brian Kemp managed to take out David Perdue, who had been, you know, a United States senator. I mean, before Trump came along, everybody assumed that David Perdue was going to be a United States senator from Georgia forever, Right. I mean, because of the name, because of who he was, et cetera. And two years after he's, you know, he loses for reelection, thanks to Donald Trump, Donald Trump tries to pump him up again. And that may have been one of his most epic fails uh, in a a year of epic fails for Donald Trump. Okay, we got to move on, though. He won by 50 points. I'm sorry. I just pulling this up (laughs) now. crazy. So what was it? What was the final margin?
1: I don't know. I'm just pulling up the New York Times. 50 uh, points. Yeah, 70. You were right. You were closer to me. 73-21. (laughs) Not 6337.
0: 7321. That is insane. That's crazy. That is crazy. So, the most interesting story of the week, I think, the release of Brittany Griner in exchange for the merchant of death arms dealer for Russia. So, let's talk about this because this has become something of a controversy. I think that most Americans are looking at this as a tremendous feel-good story. How can you not feel the joy of watching her? On the other hand, we have Paul Whelan, who's still sitting there, and many Republicans are, you know, using this as the talking point. That this is a failure. That he, it was not a good deal. He should have gotten both of them. So give me your take on the whole Brittany Griner uh, release, because I know you've dealt with this before on You're Not My Party. Yeah,
1: I've got a big rant on this one. I'm just so happy that Brittany's home. Obviously, nobody wants to, like, trade at arms dealer, and do a prisoner swap, but, you know, this isn't like the NBA, right, where you have two GMs acting in good faith, right? You're dealing with a, a genocidal monster. On the other side of the table here, we had, Tom Nichols has a good article about this in The Atlantic, where it's like, we actually still care about humans, and he doesn't, so that does give him a big advantage at the negotiating table, if you're going to grade these things such as that. To me, this is just a human story, Brittany Griner doing hard labor in Russia, targeted because she's a black woman, targeted because she's gay target because she's a female athlete that is you know why this happened there's a really great thread that I'd recommend people read if they care about by a guy named Mig Greengard he's a staffer for uh, Gary Kasparov and you know he goes on this long range about this rebutting the people that are like well you know she did break the law with her vape and the gist of his thread is there is no rule of law in Russia this is not like saying you went into Alabama and you know that the laws of the state of Alabama are differently. This was a hostage-taking situation. And so like that's what you have to acknowledge that this was. like This was a hostage-taking situation. You have to deal with it as such. As far as that's concerned, I just think that I'm happy that the administration you know continued to keep working on this. Originally, if you remember, some of the negotiation demands were related to the war. Right. So, like, there's been no sacrifices, which I think would have been a red line, for, obviously, for the Biden administration, for me personally, even. Like, the, like you can't do anything to hamper our efforts to stop their invasion of Ukraine and to give our full support to the Ukrainians. So, there was nothing like that that was on the table. To s- express sympathy for the Whelan family, which I totally have, I get. To say, man, I really wish that this situation was such that Whelan and Greiner would have gotten out and, like, that felt like more fair of a deal. I get that. To, like, accuse Biden of, like, leaving Whelan behind enemy lines he was there for the last two years of Trump, sorry, guys, this is just the nature of the the case. Whelan wasn't on offer. To attack Reiner uh, with sexist, racist, the thing that really gets my goat is, like, All the people on Fox and on social media, like mocking her for being a a WNBA player. Oh, who cares? The WNBA player, these fucking assholes that like pretend that they care so much about the sanctity of women's sports. Every time that there's a trans athlete playing in a high school skateboarding match like that's on Fox and Friends, like uh, the same token, you mock like uh, somebody that is at the highest level of their sport in the WNBA, who it's insane, by the way, that she has to even compete in a Russia league to supplement her income, you know, given the level that she's at in the WNBA like that shit pisses me off just the vitriol aimed at her you know given just the fact that she was taken hostage by her enemy, the siding with of Russia and like this whitewashing of Russia and acting like, oh, she, if she just would have followed the laws of the, the fucking Putin regime, like, fuck that. That stuff really, really makes me upset. And so, I, you know, I think that you could have a honest, good faith critique. I think there are people who are like, we shouldn't do these kinds of deals. You know, this that's outside of my expertise. But, but that is not what you're seeing on, on Fox.
0: I agree with most of that. I I guess my reaction is somewhat complicated because I do get both sides of this argument. I, I think ultimately, when it comes down to the decision that the Biden administration had to make, it was one or none this was what was on offer. It was either going to be Brittany Griner or it was going to be nobody. And so they decided that they were going to take this. Very difficult decision, I think, probably for them in terms of leaving Paul, you know, Whelan behind. But they, they made the right decision. And the Whelan family agrees with that. They have been incredibly gracious about all of they this. They have. The bad faith criticism, I agree with you absolutely completely about it. But there there's some legitimate points being made. This is negotiating with a terrorist in a hostage situation and vladimir putin held her as a high-profile hostage in order to get something of much much greater value and he succeeded and so every time you do a deal like this it is legitimate to be concerned that you are incentivizing more behavior like this there are more americans that are being held in captivity all around the world than we would like to, to think and every time something like this happens it basically says hmm Maybe you can get something for taking a high profile American as hostage in this particular case, and so Vladimir Putin is rewarded for some really, really bad behavior. I understand that, and I understand the frustration of people who are thinking, you know why is he still is sitting there making that contrast, but on balance, this is a good thing that an American has been freed it was It was hard not to feel the joy of what happened yesterday. But I guess this is where, you know, I'm listening to some of the the people who are critiquing this and saying, okay, you know, you have a legitimate point, but that doesn't mean that when you have a binary up or down decision like Joe Biden had that he didn't make the right decision. Fair enough.
1: This is where my jingoism comes in. I I don't disagree with any of that. But like, isn't that hard choice just the burden of of being a country that cares about human rights and cares about Mm -hmm. people? You know, that's never going to change, right? Like throughout all of history, there are always going to be despots who want to kidnap people to try to get leverage over us. And like they're always going to be able to in a vacuum, right? You could make the argument that say, well, if we just show them that they're not going to get anything for this, then they'll stop doing it, maybe I guess, but like that's not how we act we care about you know, we care about human life and human rights in this country, and that is why we're I still believe you know the greatest country
0: on earth well, see you know that's where this asymmetry does come in, so on the one hand, you could look at the asymmetry and say. OK, so they get this merchant of death arms dealer. We get a basketball player back. That looks asymmetric. On the other hand, your point is, I think, completely valid, which is the, the asymmetry is also that we actually care about the rule of law. They don't. We care about human life. They don't. And so that may make us look weak in some eyes, but it's also who we are. So great point. This is this is good. That was actually a better discussion than I was expecting. So <laughs> okay, I don't know what was your expectation for my commentary, um, Charlie? No, 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 no. I just, <laughs> no, I just, just I, 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 I just, think you sort of you know, peeled the onion of profundity just a little bit more than I was expecting. Thank so you. you know, good on you. All right, so it's been this kind of a week that you know now we get to. This other extraordinary story, which is extraordinary, I think, from an historical point of view, legal point of view, political point of view, and obviously for you, a personal point of view, the the passage of this respect for marriage bill yesterday on, you know, pretty fair bipartisan majority. It's so interesting to think about how uh, the politics of this have changed since the 1990s, how dramatic it has been. And the fact that you did have a supermajority in the Senate, you had uh, – how, how many Republicans voted for this? Uh,
1: Republicans, we lost some, and not to start out the negative. I thought that was weird. We, you know, we went from 45 down to 39, I to, think. To,
0: 30, to 39. But now this is now the law of the land. So talk to me about that particular piece of legislation. Um, Talk about a legislative triumph. Uh, You know, we've been beating on my home state of Wisconsin for some time. But uh, Tammy Baldwin, this is certainly one of, you know, her greatest moments as a United States senator. And, you know, she's the driving force behind that. And uh, congratulations to her. Yeah, a huge win. And another one that I guess, it depends on how you look
1: at it, but it worked out well for her. I, I was a little critical of her. I thought that they should have had this vote before the election. Well, and then they cut the deal yeah. to I do it too. in the in yeah. the, in the the lame duck uh, because a couple of Republicans were going to find their courage if they did it the lame duck. And, you know, my view is kind of like, well, let's use it as a political issue. They should use it as a political issue. It turned out they didn't need it. They won all their Senate seats. So um, at, the strategy worked out for Baldwin. So credit to her on that for sure. Awesome moment you know that again like the the idea that this could have happened i just like think back to it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I'm getting kind of old right now, but I'm trying to think about like Tim growing up in the suburbs in Denver. Um,
0: You're still spry, I think.
1: I'm <laughs> still spry, but so I'm just saying it was more years ago than maybe it would seem now, I guess, but two, 20 years ago. I'm just trying to think about me myself 20 years ago, thinking that, that this vote could happen, that there would be 39 Republicans supporting it. Inconceivable. Uh, inconceivable. Inconceivable yeah, yeah. to young closeted yeah, yeah. Tim. Um, yeah. And so that is amazing progress. It's a nice for Biden. It kind of brings full circle you know biden hasn't exactly been this on the civil rights wing of the democratic party uh per se um from time to time on the leading edge but he was on this uh you know he, he blurts out that he's for gay marriage on that meet the press interview uh I, I think i have this right i think it's about 10 years ago to the day of when the vote came down uh, you know give or take a few days so quite a decade for biden um, getting out front on this and he deserves a ton of credit, and so yeah, I, I mean, it's just it makes me feel good. I think that my the two things that just for context on this that are a little you know concerning are one, this repeals basically the Defense of Marriage Act. So for me and and Tyler and our family, we're now safe and protected and good on Congress for doing this. This means that if we decide to move to a red state, our marriage will still be recognized, even if that state would overturn it, that, that federally, you know, with taxes and such, our marriage will still be recognized. What it can't do because our federalist system, right, is if the Supreme Court was to try to overturn Obergefell, then in theory, a red state could ban... Gay marriage still—that seems like a very far-out there possibility to me. But that's kind of the narrow element of what was passed. Um, uh, not narrow, but that's the limits of what was passed. And then, you know, like I said, I thought it was kind of weird that, that we lost six Republican House <laughs> members <laughs> over the last month. All this progress over the two decades, and then they went from forty-five to thirty-nine or forty-seven to thirty-nine Republican votes. And the Vicky Hartzler speech—that was weird. I don't know. It's—it's it's something to show you though the yeah. the stability of the gay position here that we could watch that and laugh like I would watch that and be angry or mad maybe 10 years ago but now I watched it and just like you're crying over the fact that that's my marriage just now not gonna at risk of annulment by government um uh, a little bit pretty odd um situation there
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you know, th- th- this is one where, where the legislation followed public opinion, which has undergone this sea change. And I just want to emphasize, make a couple of pointers. Number one, that there's a piece in either the Times or the Post, see, I, I get confused on these things, pointing out the importance of this campaign by very prominent Republicans to work the Republican side of the aisle. People like Ken Millman, who used to work in the Bush administration and, and others who organize, you know, a campaign to to encourage Republicans, you know, and, and you know, showed them them, the polls, you know, talk to them about, you know, where the public was on this, you know, how they did not want to, you know, create this level of uncertainty. That would be point number one. Point number two is I think that the success of this legislation underlines the importance of the compromise that Tammy Baldwin and others made on the issue of religious freedom. And I understand this is a very, very difficult issue. You know, the, the fact that you need to balance out the recognition of the rights. You know, let's also, if we're going to get this kind of legislation through, we need to acknowledge, you know, the rights of conscience that not every, you know, churches should not be compelled to necessarily change their practices. And, you know, if in fact they had insisted on a bill without any religious freedom, uh, religious liberty, religious conscience elements, we would not be having this discussion today. It just would not happen. And this issue would become much more toxic going forward. And I think that with that compromise, you come close to diffusing the issue. Now, I'm not so naive to think it's not going to be part of the culture war, but the full on recognition of the religious conscience provisions takes a lot of the edge off that
1: yeah i and I don't have opposition to this. I remember having some uh awkward in discussions with with Jeb prepping him for these questions um mm-hmm. uh back in twenty sixteen, you know trying to navigate around the language, not awkward because he was in a bad place on it, but just you know figuring out how to talk about it I actually I think there's some progressive some of these activist groups uh, like disagree with me on this on the left. i don't I think the productions are good and and I think that it's a sign that graciousness is important. It's a sign of the progress that we have in this country that you can feel stable in this. I can't get myself to a place where I'm upset about the lady that doesn't want to make a a wedding website. That's fine for me. I'm sure there's some legal, you know, different, you got to figure out how how this works law. There's some constitutional elements to this. Obviously, that is not the case if, you know, my husband's from Union, West Virginia, right? Like there's only one restaurant on Main Street. Like if that restaurant wanted to ban a a gay wedding party from happening there, like they should not be allowed to do that, right? Like there should be reasonable restrictions on all this sort of thing. But I think that it it is a sign of the progress and and it's an area where I kind of feel like it's important important to have you know graciousness and recognition of like letting people have Conscious objections, um, you know, which I think are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but I'd like them to meet me and my family. I think we're fine. I don't think there's anything to be uh, unconscious about. I, I also find it oftentimes it's a little inconsistent. I notice that these conscious objections don't usually tend to straight people's third weddings. No. But okay, well, you know, whatever. I just think that that is kind of how we live in a pluralistic society, and I think that that's fine. Exactly.
0: I see. I think that's the key point. This is what it means to live in a pluralistic society, and that's not going to change anything. anytime time soon. So let's end on that positive note. Great. Let's do it. You know, that weirdly enough, uh 2022 seems to be ending on kind of an up note. And when I I'm by the way saying that I hope I'm not jinxing it. I hope I'm not hexing it, but
1: I hope I'm not hexing either cuz I've already planned my New Year's episode for with Drew for not my party and it's I was like we're going to do we're going to go all out. Like we're going to remind the teens that it's been a good year. Like let them celebrate. There's been some, you know, not great stuff, but on balance,
0: a good year. I can't wait for that kind of hungry for that sort of thing, right? I mean, sure. because we, we've been through some pretty dark periods here. I mean, we some have. really dark, you know. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, uh, Tim, uh, you and your family, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Um, Merry Christmas and uh, a wonderful new year. And, uh, you know, we've almost made it to the end of 2022. So thanks for coming along for the ride. Enjoy France. You're going to have to learn how to do Is it You. What would it be? What is Merry Christmas in French? I will be back here by Christmas, but uh, there may be some visits to Bordeaux, Cognac, and Champagne for no particular reason, because that's basically the area we're going to be in sure you know well i should have had that and enjoy it charlie um it's been a good year we'll talk to you on the flip side okay thanks a lot and thank you all for listening to this weekend's bulwark podcast i'm charlie sykes stick around for next week because i think we have some special podcasts for you that'll remind you what an extraordinary um, and often mind-blowing year we just had